My guest this episode is someone responsible for many firsts. First female sports reporter for the Miami Herald. First woman on the Washington football team beat at the Washington Post. First president of the Association for Women in Sports Media. A true trailblazer in journalism, Christine Brennan. She told me that her mentors are a who's who in sports journalism and that her mentees are some of the nation's most respected journalists. She also shared how she dealt with the haters, both then and now, and surprised me with what she said was the most important story of her career and how it changed her life forever. Award-winning national sports columnist for USA Today, commentator for CNN, ABC News, PBS NewsHour, and NPR, best-selling author, and one of the most influential journalists in the world. Welcome to the Sports Mentoring Project, Christine Brennan. John, it's great to be with you. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely, and we'll start off with our lightning round of short questions with short answers. Sounds good. Do you have a mentor? And if so, who is it? The answer is probably I had many mentors. No one person comes to mind completely because of different stages of my life. Uh, but it, it certainly teachers in high school and, and, and professors in college, you know, who encouraged me. And, uh, and then, but professionally, I think was probably, sorry, this, I know it's a lightning round, but uh, professionally, I would, I would name my sports editors, uh, Paul Anger at the Miami Herald and his assistant, Dave Robinson, who really took me under their wing uh, and started to show me the ropes in professional sports journalism uh, right after I got out of Northwestern. And then George Solomon at the Washington Post um, was, uh, hired me. And of course, that, that was huge. Uh, Dick Schaap is another, the great uh, Dick Schaap, obviously, was doing TV and uh, newspaper work and books. And that's the path I was hoping for that I might achieve myself, John. And so I think once I got to know Dick Schaap and do the sports reporters with him, I, it was great to, to, to meet him and to realize he was as nice as anyone could hope. And and as helpful and as encouraging as, as any young journalist could hope to have. So I would certainly put him at the top of my list uh, as mentors once I got into the business. And, and Dick's on Jeremy, as most of our listeners would probably know as a journalist himself. Going back to his father, what would you say his superpower is? <laughs> you know, I think kindness. Um, and I certainly try to um, emulate that as best I can when I deal with uh, young people, when I mentor students or young journalists or just you know, people in general who might not even be journalists, uh, students, what have you, uh, the kindness that Dick Shapps showed. You know, he was, he was a rock star. Uh, and I think that just his approachability that uh, when one point I, I told them I had seen him on a sidewalk in New York City when I was there on a trip when I was in college, far away, so there was no way of approaching him. I was actually in a cab, and there he was on the on the sidewalk finishing, uh, leaving ABC News, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, there's Dick Chev. I said to my brother and my mom and as we were in this cab. Well, I told them that story as we're sitting on the set waiting, waiting to get started with uh, sports reporters when ESPN sports reporters was on and a very big show on a Sunday morning, you know, in the day. And, and, and he goes, look, look at that, you know, look at you now, you know, from, from what, being in a cab and that, you know, he was so self-effacing, but you know, like you saw me then. And, and now look, we're sitting next to each other. You're right here on the set with me. And I was like, oh my gosh, do dreams come true? Absolutely. Dreams come true. If he were with us here right now, what would you say to him? Thank you. Uh, first and foremost, thank you. Thank you, Dick, for uh, showing, showing me the way, showing all so many of us the way. You know, this was a time 
when we there was growing up there was no internet of course uh, there were four channels basically <laughs> and you you know watched a baseball game every week or two you know maybe a couple during the week if I, we got a Detroit Tigers game in Toledo as well as a major league baseball game of the week and there's no ESPN of course and and so you took sports where you can get it, you know, you, you took little bits and pieces and the newspaper was everything and reading about the, the games the night before and, and, and reading books about sports was, it was just, it was oxygen to me. Uh, and so to read Dick Shep's books, to, to know he was on ABC, uh, he was on the radio as well. I could hear him. And, and I think just the showing me the way and, and showing me a path forward uh, it, that sports journalism could be much more all-encompassing than just in the newspaper, which of course was huge, <laughs> but uh, that you could have TV, you could write, you could be on air, you could do all of these things. You could go to faraway places and cover major sporting events. And that's what Dick Shap showed me. So uh, just thank you. Uh, thank you for your kindness and thank you for showing me the way. And you've been on both side, sides of that mentoring equation. What would you say make the best qualities of a mentor and a mentee? Certainly on the mentor side, because clearly I, I get that's that's my role now. I, uh, I I don't know that there's any more mentoring of me that, that's going to happen. Um, <laughs> although although I'm open to it always, of course. I uh, but on the mentoring side, in other words, the the uh, you know generally the older person to the younger person, um, it's listening. It's I I always try whether it's a phone conversation, John, where you're talking to a student. Uh, in fact, I'm going to do a couple later today as uh, today we're talking and uh, I've got a young student calling me uh, in a few hours to chat and, and I've got two more that I need to connect with maybe today. And uh, I listen, I, I try for the first five, 10 minutes to say, you know, tell me about yourself. Tell me where you are. I may know a little bit. We probably emailed. So I have a sense. I may well have looked them up online or uh, they sent me a bio or, you know, what have you, but uh, get a chance to see where they are. I often will ask, where do you see yourself in five to 10 years or seven years or 15 years? You know, I, it, it doesn't really matter. It's more just moving ahead from this moment, to looking into the future a little bit. Where do you see yourself? What is interesting to you? And I said, by the way, it can be wrong because I, my early thoughts of what I would do, I thought I'd be a lawyer in Chicago. And, um, you know, I never was a lawyer and I never lived in Chicago after I left Northwestern, which was Evanston anyway. So bottom line is I was pretty wrong on my, my thought. I'm not sure why I thought I'd be a lawyer, but that's kind of what I thought when I was, you know, just right out of high school, even though I love journalism more than anything. I just didn't know that this was possible, that you could have this kind of career and this wonderful adventure of a lifetime that I'm so fortunate to have. Anyway, so I'll, I'll talk to, I'll listen, uh, which of course is what <laughs> I'm talking right now to you, telling you this and going on and on. But I, I listen, I, I ask them if few questions. I ask them to think about what is interesting to them and where they might see themselves, as I said, in 5, 10, 15 years. And then we start talking. Uh, then I give them some thoughts. I, you know, Certainly, I think it's important to put yourself in their shoes as much as you can. I often try, I ask how old they are if I don't know, um, just so I know exactly where they are. And I can go back in my mind to where I was at that age, which I think is crucial. I think this is so important to be able to say to them, I remember what I was doing when I was 21. I remember what I was thinking. I remember my fears. I might have been nervous about something, my doubts. And people kind of go, oh, you, you had doubts? You, you lack confidence? And I said, well, 
Yes, I think we all do. Um, and, and college friends laugh, you know, Mike Wilbon and I went to college together and met first day freshman year and we were on a panel once and I said then, he goes, you had no doubts, you were confident, you knew what you were doing. I said, well, thank you. Um, and I guess maybe I did, but I also, of course we have doubts. Of course we wonder, of course our stomachs churn. And if I can do that with a go back in time and describe my feelings, I think that helps anyone, any younger person understanding that it's okay to be a little nervous. It's okay to wonder. It's okay to not be 100% sure. And even though I thought I was 100% sure, I still had doubts. And, and they were not overwhelming doubts by any means. Clearly, I, I was you know, launched into this career. I'm so fortunate. But it, it, I think that's important. I think it's important to identify or help the younger person, the mentee, identify with you, with, in, with, in this case, with the mentor. And to, to share experiences as much as possible and to show we're on equal footing, even though one is clearly farther ahead in their career than the other, just by definition. So that's the mentor. And then the mentee, just be a sponge, just ask questions and listen. And, you know, when, when you ask me about mentors, uh, and obviously I named a few, but, um, you know, I remember uh, meeting a Chicago Tribune reporter named Jack Fuller, who was at our house because my father was very involved in politics in Ohio. And he came to, in, uh, along with a presidential candidate, Phil Crane, a uh, congressman at the time from Illinois. And I didn't care that Phil Crane was in our house. <laughs> and that was, by the way, I, I, I uh, certainly stress a different Republican Party, not, not mm -hmm. what we're seeing now. I think it's very important to say that. Uh, because it's just, yeah, I don't want anyone to think that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that my father would have been uh, any, anything like what's, what's going on, the awfulness and the hate and the, and the, uh, you know, the things that we're seeing from uh, Donald Trump's Republican Party now. But Phil Crane was in our house and he's a candidate for president. And this was back in the late 70s. But I don't care about him. I am literally asking uh, Mr. Fuller, every possible question I can <laughs> ask. And he was, he was a great journalist and he ended up uh, going on to be uh, uh, one of the editors of, uh, I think the executive editor, I can look it up to make sure, of the Chicago Tribune. And um, he was editor and then publisher of the Chicago Tribune actually. And he's passed away now. But so I'm, I, I'm just like a, attached myself to Jack Fuller and asking question after question after question. Uh, I know he was reporting on the evening, so he was trying to, of course, pay attention to what the congressman was saying and, and what my dad was saying and what our family as we were all having dinner together. But I just turned back every chance I could right back to, to Mr. Fuller and said, hey, may I ask you another question? May, may I ask you? I'm sorry to bother you. But and he goes, no, no. And he was great. And so, again, be a sponge uh, if you're the mentee and just ask questions and learn and learn and watch and observe and uh, just find out as much as you can from that person. And that's what I did. Th that was just one night. That was not any kind of mentoring relationship. But that one night with Jack Fuller of the Chicago Tribune uh, was I, it's so, still fresh in my mind uh, because of the, of the opportunity I took uh, to ask him questions. And he was so kind and so willing to be my mentor for that evening. Who would you say today is your most famous or notable mentee? <laughs> oh, my. I'm lucky because I've, I've gotten to know uh, a lot of young people and, and they, me, I guess. And, and so, um, and a lot of people who probably didn't need much mentoring, but I'll give you two. In both cases, uh, I feel, uh, we, you know, we had a great connection, uh, either high school or early college for them. 
And I'm so proud of where they are today. And uh, the first uh, was Rachel Nichols. Uh, Rachel got in touch when she was in high school here in the DC area when I was at the Washington Post. And she went to Northwestern. And uh, so obviously we had a lot to talk about. And then she was an intern at the Washington Post. And uh, yeah, she was just obviously, uh, of course, ESPN. Now, uh, we worked together actually at CNN for a while, which was really fun to be on the set of the Super Bowl. We looked at each other with both holding microphones ready to go on the air. And, and that was, we kind of had a smile like, this is really cool at the Phoenix, uh, Arizona Super Bowl. I was at six, seven years ago now. So Rachel Nichols, obviously a star at ESPN and, and, and just a, a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful person, a wonderful broadcast journalist and, and a wonderful journalist. And then um, uh, the other I would mention is Phil Mattingly. And Phil uh, is, of course, uh, at CNN and um, has just had a, a, a wonderful rise through the ranks uh, in his career. And he got in touch uh, via email when he was in college and he was finished playing baseball for Ohio State and he thought he wanted to be a journalist and through uh, uh, connections back in my hometown of uh, Ottawa Hills, a suburb of Toledo, Ohio, Phil went to the same high school I went to, or I went to the same high school Phil went to, Ottawa Hills High School. And we didn't know each other, but I, my sister lived in, the, in Ottawa Hills and, and still does. And so she knew a lot of people. And Phil was um, obviously someone who was looking uh, for guidance or had some questions. So I was happy to answer his email. And then we talked and, and then we uh, finally met. And he just decided he wanted to be a journalist and I encouraged him to get into the school paper at Ohio State, the Lantern, and just start writing. And that's what he did. And then he went to grad school at Boston University in, in journalism and, uh, and then came to Washington, D.C. and just was on his way. And it was all about hard work and just dedication to excelling, uh, as it was with Rachel, too. Um, but Phil was a, a little behind because he hadn't really studied journalism and he wasn't, you know, had, had been doing baseball and at Ohio State. And that's kind of a full time job if you're a, if you're a, <laughs> a student athlete and then you're a student as well. And so um, so with about, I think he was 20 when he started to really focus on journalism and I'm so proud of him. And of course, now he's the uh, uh, White House correspondent. Um, for it for for cnn he's he's uh moved up from from the hill to uh, a white house correspondent role uh i think you know he's number two at the white house for cnn right now and that's just fantastic and so very very proud of phil and uh as i, I really can like almost no credit john for both <laughs> rachel and phil's success because as i said they did not need mentoring they were destined for greatness but um but i'm very proud of both of them i'm in touch with both of them and, I, and they know all this, I think, already, but uh, just, just I'm smiling as I'm talking about them because they just love what they're doing. And I've always loved what I'm doing. And we're so lucky and fortunate to do what we get to do, you know, what we love um, and, and turn our avocation into our vocation. Um, and they are just, just uh, fantastic. Uh, so I, I love to take full credit. I'll take no credit, but I'm just honored to know them and honored to have uh, been uh, along their path and, and happy to, to help in any way, even though, as I said, they really didn't need, need much, much help. They were on their way. Well, if one or both of them have a chance to listen to this, uh, I'm sure they'll love to hear that sentiment from you. And, and I really want to dive in with you now and talk about some of your mentors and what makes mentoring work. Uh, I'm going to rattle off some names, Christine, George Solomon, Edwin Pope, Shirley Povich, Bud Collins, all men. Is that the nature of the industry or by choice? 
Oh, it was the nature of the industry back, uh, back when I was breaking in. Um, obviously, I got to know women, uh, wonderful uh, women role models in, in sports journalism, women who came before me, uh, who opened doors that I walked through. I know that I was still in an early wave of women in sports media, but there are women like Leslie Visser uh, and Robin Herman and Lori Mifflin and Helene Elliott, who came a little bit before me and, and all of them, and Tracy Dodds, uh, and there are certainly others as well, who, who in their own ways uh, helped me and encouraged me and, and just showed me the way. So I do feel that way about them, that uh, there were certainly women. But when we're talking about people like sports editors, uh, we're talking about my sports editor in, in Miami, Paul Anger, the columnist, uh, the, the top sports columnist at the Miami Herald, Edwin Pope. When you talk about um, uh, George Solomon and, um, and Bud Collins, uh, especially in the tennis world, when I started covering a lot of tennis, uh, the, the reality was it, it was a man's world and it, sports media still is predominantly a male dominated field, although more and more women are getting into it all the time, which is fantastic. And I've worked very hard for that and, and, and certainly encourage a lot of young women and young men, but especially women to get into the business. And the Association for Women in Sports Media is basically a mentoring uh, organization at its core. And I was the first president from 1988 to 1990 and, and started a scholarship internship program that we have uh, given out close to 200 now scholarship internships, um, 180, 90, something like that. Uh, and I'm, I'm thrilled. This might be the, the greatest achievement of my career uh, <laughs> in a way is that is starting that scholarship internship program as we were all just beginning awesome, as we call it, the Association for Women in Sports Media. So, but bottom line, it was, it was men who were, you know, who were in charge. And so, um, and so that, that's why it was, it was, you know, you didn't get a chance to, to say, Hey, I, I want to have a woman uh, mentor because often I didn't see any women. And again, in the early eighties, when I'm coming out of Northwestern with my undergrad and my master's and launched, you know, like a rocket ship out into this world, nothing was going to stop me. But there was definitely, I never saw a woman uh, really writing about sports uh, and certainly not on a daily basis when I was in Miami. And I never uh, really saw women on TV, even uh, Phyllis George, uh, Miss America 1971 was on the NFL Today show and I got to know Phyllis. She passed away last year, so sadly. Got to know her and, and we would be in touch and her, her daughter, Pamela Brown, I work with on CNN. I'm always honored when, when Pamela is anchoring and I'm, I get a chance to be on talking sports with her. We always talk about her mom in the break before we go on the air. But, uh, you, you know, but, but at that point, again, you didn't have email addresses to get in touch with Phyllis George. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not saying she wouldn't have wanted to, but I wouldn't have even thought of that. Uh, Leslie Visser and I met in 1982. And so I'd, I'd been at the Miami Herald for a year at that point. And, and that was great to meet her. And, and then you have a, someone's phone number, right? But it would be landline. So again, you're not, you're not texting, you know, you're not emailing. And it's just a different environment. Our, our world was so different. So the mentoring was so different. And so who was I around? Men. So of course these men were my role models, but no, I would have loved to have female role models, would have loved it. And um, in fact, I, I, it was really seeing Helene Elliott at, at the Daily Northwestern 
when I walked in in freshman year, that first week of going to meetings and, uh, you know, classes and just, or even before classes, just getting a chance to check out all kinds of organizations, groups, et cetera. And I walk into the Daily Northwestern and I go to the sports department and, and there's sports editor is a woman, Helene Elliott. And so really, and she knows this, uh, Helene now is a Hall of Famer at the LA Times, has been there for years. But Helene knows this, that um, seeing her and getting a chance to see that a woman was writing sports and editing sports, the sports editor of the Daily Northwestern really showed me that that was possible. And that was really one of the first opportunities I had to see that. So to answer your question, long answer, but yes, the men were my role models because you just didn't run into women on a daily basis. And there was no way to really be in touch, obviously, the way we are now. Back in Miami and, and even in Washington, you know, early in your career, you got a lot of, uh, shall we say, hate mail. Um, and back then it was snail mail, right? Which eventually turned into email, which eventually turned into mean tweets. How does how do you process the hate that comes your way or that came your way, I should say, not not so much anymore? And how has that changed you and changed the way you respond to it? It certainly changed in the sense that when people used to write letters to me, as you were referring to hate mail uh, and uh, or to my editor, like especially at The Washington Post, um, Miami Herald, probably a little bit. I, I don't remember any of them, but I'm sure it existed. But the, the Washington Post, when, when George put me on the Washington football team beat, and I was the first woman to cover the team, 85 uh, through 87, ending with the January of 88 Super Bowl that Washington won. And these were the back in the days when Washington won games and won Super Bowls, <laughs> which, which most people in D.C. don't, don't remember those days. Um, certainly, if you're a certain age, you would never heard of those days. And um, I guess people remember them now, obviously, but it's, a, it's, it's uh, in the rearview mirror. Well, definitely there were letters and, you know, sometimes they, I mean, they, they made no sense and they'd be, uh, you know, in an envelope, you'd open up your mail, you'd have kids writing to you. You'd have uh, another woman that I actually mentored a little bit and wrote to me. And I wrote back was Molly Solomon, who is now the highest ranking woman in uh, sports uh, television leadership as the um, executive producer of the golf channel and also running NBC's Olympics coverage. So Molly Solomon, another one. And so she wrote me a letter. So, you know, that was great. And I, <laughs> I wrote her back and, and we're still friends to this day as I am with Rachel Nichols, as I mentioned, and Phil Mattingly uh, also, and, and um, you know, very happily so. Anyway, uh, but then you'd get letters and you'd open them up and it'd be like, you know, in crayon or, you know, somebody cutting out magazine letters and putting them you know, in a, in a letter or whatever, just a, a screaming, you know, torrent of abuse. I never gave that a second thought. I'd usually take it to George or another editor because they would say, we want to see this stuff. I think Wilbon would do the same because then we end up working next, sitting next to each other for years at the Washington Post. And he would get some, obviously, as a black man. And so I, you just kind of gave them to someone and you, and you, and you moved on, didn't, didn't give it a second thought. If there were security concerns, uh, the Washington Post security would get involved. But, you know, again, all was well. I was not worried at all. But um, now, of course, it's a very different thing. They attach themselves to you and it becomes very public. So those letters went to me and me alone. There was no one out on the street that knew I got that letter much less the contents of that letter, much less the person's name or, or their handle, whatever. Now, of course, all these people can go ahead and say the same awful stuff to young journalists, be they women, be they people of color, uh, whomever, and, and they can attach the, the, they're attaching themselves to you. 
and it's there for everyone to see. So that is a huge difference. And I feel very fortunate, John, that I was able to come up in a time where you didn't have someone attaching themselves to you in public. And one of the things I tell all students I talk to, whether I'm mentoring them or speaking to a class, which I do a lot of that at Northwestern where I'm a professor of practice at the Medill School of Journalism or at the University of Maryland or any number of classes, do a lot of classes, Zoom classes right now during the pandemic. I tell them that if they're, cover- especially if they're covering something controversial. So you're the football beat writer for, you know, uh, for the, uh, you know, at the University of Maryland, and you're going to have people who care very much, uh, maybe better example would be Ohio State at the Lantern at Ohio State. And you've got people who care very much about that football team and your coverage, and you write a column about something that's negative. And you're 18, 19, 20, 21, you know, these people don't care, they'll just attack you. Mm-hmm. And, and I would, I, and I would, I tell all these students is don't read your mentions. Do not, do not. Um, have your brother, your sister, your cousin, your roommate, your best friend, someone go in and just block or mute all these people because it does absolutely no good, John, for young journalists to be uh, spending time being dragged down like that by these awful people uh, or bots or whatever they are. And, uh, and I wish these people would think about that. Uh, we do not, I don't want to lose these young journalists from journalism before they get going. And I think there's a real risk here that after getting pummeled day after day uh, in the, you know, in the Twitterverse, that, that we're going to lose young journalists, that they're just going to say, I'm out of here. I'm going to law school. I'm going to med school. I'm going to, you know, go into business school. I'm going to do something else. And that never, that fear, that, that concern was never there for, for my generation uh, or even, you know, even people 10, 15 years after me, because again, you didn't have social media. So while I love social media, I love breaking news on Twitter. There's nothing more fun than putting a big story like breaking the Olympic postponement news, probably my biggest scoop last uh, year. And as sad as obviously that was, the, that news, but uh, to break that and watch it just explode online and, and around the world, the retweets and thousands and thousands. It was amazing. Um, that's really cool. But the flip side of this, especially for young journalists, I can handle it. I'm, I'm fine. I block them, mute them, whatever, and move on uh, or just ignore them. But uh, some blocking or muting people means you know that they don't come back, which actually is kind of funny. And um, But it, you know what they're doing to young people and going after women and going after people of color and the words they're using, it's just appalling. And they should be ashamed of themselves. And I do... I am concerned for young people. And so that's why I tell them all, just do not get in there. Don't dive into that cesspool with them. Um, be above it all and keep you know, living your beautiful life. And don't let these people drag you down. Back when you were breaking into the industry, you and Leslie and a few others really kicked down the door. And, and journalism was the way in for a lot of girls and women to get into sports. And now in today's day and age, we have female role models that are much easier to come by. Uh, Kim Ang. Uh, from the Marlins, Becky Hammond from the Spurs, Sarah Thomas, a referee uh, who uh, refed in the Super Bowl, Lori Locust and Moral Jafadifar, who coached on the, uh, for the Bucks and uh, are Super Bowl champions. And even in hockey, Kendall Coyne Schofield with the Blackhawks is in the front office. How do you reconcile sort of now that we're seeing women in such high profile and influential positions with, you know, your thoughts on if you were to break into the industry now, the kind of opportunities you would have across sports and, and probably more quickly. 
one thing that would not have happened is I probably wouldn't have gone right to the Miami Herald <laughs> uh, out of Northwestern and, and had a major beat uh, as a 22-year-old. Um, I had interned the previous summer, so they knew me and I knew them. And so that's certainly internships are the key for those listening to us. Internships, 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 summer internships, fall internships, hopefully paid. But even if you can just get your foot in the door in any way, shape or form, that's huge. Um, but I had that summer internship. So they knew they knew my work and I knew them. So I felt very confident and comfortable then when the Herald offered me a, a job. But I was the first woman that the full time woman sports writer at the Miami Herald. If I had been a white man, I would not have gotten that job. I firmly believe I would have still been able to you know, get to where hopefully where I am now. But the point is that um, I guess I was a token in some ways. So it seems kind of silly to say that now, but um, the Herald had to hire, basically had to at some point soon had to hire a woman because Boston Globe had Leslie Visser, New York Times, other New York papers had had uh, Lori Mifflin, uh, Robin Herman, et cetera. And, and uh, it was time, the, the Herald was behind in 1981. And so they had, to, they had to get moving on that. And so that's, I think it's very important to be honest about this, that I got that job because I was a woman, also because they knew what I was doing and, and I'd had four internships and obviously been the, you know, I'd had a, <laughs> this great education at Northwestern and, and I was a managing editor of the Daily Northwestern. So I, I mean, I, I felt again, very, that I deserved it, but it also was a fact that, that they wanted to hire a woman. So let's just be brutally honest here. And um, so when I talk to young women now and they said, well, you started at the Miami Herald, you know, at the time the Herald was one of the top 10 newspapers in the country. Uh, it was just the glory days of newspapers, glory days of the Miami Herald and Florida newspapers. And, uh, it, and they put me right on the Florida Gators beat, the football beat. And uh, so, you know, right, right to one of the top beats. This was when Miami was really only football. There was no Major League Baseball. There was no Miami Heat, NBA. There was no uh, NHL team. Uh, it was just, it was the Dolphins and then Florida, Florida State and Miami. So I got one of the four biggest beats, boom, um, right uh, certainly, I mean, there's golf and other things too, but it was, it was a huge thing. And I, I got that again, at a time and a place where today, as I tell these young women, it's great if you're going to uh, to Biloxi, Mississippi. It's great if you're going to uh, a small town in Iowa, if you're going uh, up to you know somewhere in Montana or Idaho, if, or you're going to a small paper in, in Massachusetts, uh, or you're gonna, you know you're going to work at even medium size like Albany or my hometown of Toledo, the Toledo Blade, which I had two summer, or, yeah, twice I had summer internships there during my college years and two different summers. You know, it, that's great. Um, it's, it's fantastic because now a woman is not a novelty, I guess is what I'm saying, John. Now I, I'm not, a woman is not a token, quote unquote, even though I, I hate that word. Um, now, you know, there's so many women in the business, which is so great that a lot of these young women are excellent and they're going to start at smaller places. And that's fine. Uh, that's absolutely fine. But it can be a little disconcerting as I'm mentoring someone and, and they're like, well, you started the Miami Herald, went to the Washington Post. I said, well, consider the time, you know, consider what was that's going hard, on there. That must be a hard conversation to have. Well, it's, you know, I'm young and impatient, right? Yeah, no, it's a good point. It's a good point. I, I, I think if you can tell, I'm going to always be 
honest and forthright. I, I put, I'm that way in my columns and I'm going to not beat around the bush. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. I'm not going to waste your time with your taking a few minutes to read one of my columns or watch me on TV or, or, uh, and mentoring. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. And so I just make it clear that times have changed and the wonderful reason they've changed is because now there are so many opportunities for women and girls in sports. I mean, it's truly linked with Title IX, which the 50th anniversary will be next year, um, that, you know, growing up with sports, uh, equality, um, mom and dad, you know, look at their son and daughter and say, you're both going to play sports. And there's such a, a sense of equality in the family. You're going to watch your, your sister's games. You're going to watch your brother's games. Right. You know, when I was growing up, you know, we, we had a couple moms and my dad came to all my games, basketball and a six sport athlete in high school, not because I was so great, but because you didn't have to specialize and you could play two, two sports in one day sometimes. And, but we only six had, sports, you know, some just to help us with the six sports. Sure. Uh, field hockey and tennis in the fall, uh, first doubles tennis, uh, and then, um, field hockey, um, and often running literally from a tennis match, then throwing on my field hockey stuff and making it in, you know, in time for the second half of the, of the, of the field hockey game, the varsity <laughs> game or whatever, or the full varsity, whatever. And, um, and then winter was volleyball and basketball. Basketball was one of my absolute favorites. And then, and then the spring was, uh, softball and track and field and some track and field. I, I didn't do all six every year. But I did, there were several years where I did all six and, and, and certainly four, um, you know, in several, in a couple of years as well during my four years in high school. So, so, um, so, you know, but my mom and dad would come to the games and, and, you know, my, occasionally my little sister, uh, youngest sister would come with my mom, but, you know, no one really cared. Well, now people care. And now those girls games are on Friday night, um, alternating with the boys games where we were always like, you know, Tuesday at four or something in the gym, you know, and it was just, there's no sense of equality at all. And that's, that's okay. It, you know, it's not okay, but it's kind of okay because that's the way it was. I'm a realist. So that's, I'm very practical about these things. And that's, you know, the way it was. Well, now these girls, as they grow up to be women and wanting careers in sports and, or they may have loved journalism and wanting careers in journalism, but they played sports. They love sports. They see women on TV all the time talking about sports, reading women's bylines on the internet, reading women on Twitter. So now, of course, they know that there are so many women out there. Uh, they want a career in sports, sports media, uh, maybe sports medicine, maybe sports law, uh, maybe sports administration, uh, sports public relations work. All of these things are now open to women. So the end result, though, is I, I think they're very aware. I think their eyes are wide open so that then when we're talking about I'm, you know, on this rocket ship going from Northwestern right to the Miami Herald and, you know, launching myself into this, this career, that that was because of the time. Um, hopefully it was because I had, you know, something to offer and clearly things worked out and I didn't, you know, mess up and fall flat on my face. So good on that. But uh, it, it's just a different time. And so I, I, I have a pretty strong sense within a few minutes of chatting about that, that these young women understand that if they don't, um, I will absolutely make that point that, hey, you are great and you are going to be a rock star. You are a rock star and you're going to have a wonderful long career in journalism and sports journalism, whatever you want to do. Absolutely. Uh, but it's your starting point is going to be different from the starting point of some of us back, you know, 30, 40, 50, 
you know, the women who were starting, I guess it is now 50 years ago, women who were coming of age and, and getting out of college in the early and mid seventies, approaching 50 years, those women, um, you know, they were the first. And then I'm coming along in the eighties and I'm still one of the first. And, uh, and so it was just a different time. So I, I, I hope I can make that case and make that point. And what I wanna do is encourage. I, I will never, ever, ever leave a phone call, uh, leave a student, leave, uh, leave a conversation with a discordant note. Um, that is something, first of all, it's not in my DNA. Anyone who knows me knows I'm, I'm uh, Leslie Visser jokes with me that I, I swallowed a light bulb. You know, I, I'm just, I'm so optimistic and I, I am, and I, I'm going to be that way, uh, John, no way am I changing. So I, I believe in that. I believe in these students and I believe that great things are happening, going to happen for them. Uh, but I would never, ever, ever allow someone to go, oh my gosh, she started at the Miami Herald and went to the Washington Post and she was, I was like 26, I was at the Washington Post. How is that ever going to happen for me? No, forget that. That's a different time, different situation. We are looking at your situation. We are looking at you and where you are and this wonderful world in which women are accepted in these jobs and women are encouraged to have these jobs and to have these careers and these wonderful lives of their dreams. And no one is putting up barriers, except some of maybe social media and some of that, the garbage we see there. But those people aren't their bosses. Those people aren't doing the hiring. They're just the uh, Neanderthals who have crawled out of the woodwork and need to crawl back into the woodwork. And um, hopefully they will. And in the meantime, um, let's get you started on your wonderful life and your wonderful and, career. And it's more than being accepted and getting the jobs and being successful. It's, it's excelling and becoming role models themselves. And you talk a little bit about Title IX turns 49 this year and what a polarizing issue is, was at the time. I want to fast forward to today and talk about uh, two of the biggest issues that college athletics face right now, but are very, very complex, unlike Title IX. Um, name, image, and likeness and accommodating transgender women and girls. I would love your take on both. Yes. Well, how many uh, hours do we have? <laughs> <laughs> books, uh, books are being written on both topics, and uh, I'm sure. So, uh, just kind of the overview. And again, these are um, can be new. You know, there's. It's funny as we talked. It's not funny, but it's it's reality that as we talk about uh, Twitter and social media and some of the awfulness and and some of the greatness of those things. You know, there's no nuance, right? There's no nuance anymore. Well, these are nuanced uh, situations. Mm -hmm. Um, I have always been one on the issue of name, image, and likeness. I've, I've always been one that has pointed out as we talk about paying athletes, it's almost always, John, the conversation is we're going to pay the football team and they say basketball. And of course, I hope in 2021, we are adding the adjective men's now to basketball to, dis to differentiate because there are, of course, there's women's basketball. And if we call it basketball and women's basketball, that is just wrong. It is, um, it is sexist. It's um, so little semantics there. And, and I know you didn't say that, but I'm just saying mostly we talk about uh, football and basketball. And when people say basketball, they mean men's basketball. I wish they'd say men's basketball. It's time you guys to do that. And um and they're not talking about women. And so I've often said, if we're going to pay the football players, I think we have to pay the field hockey players. And I certainly hope that we are aware of that and aware of Title IX um, and probably getting prepared for Title IX lawsuits if all of a sudden we're paying one group of people and not the other. Now, that would be the old conversation about paying athletes. Now, of course, comes in the name image, specific, the name, image, and likeness issue. And I agree 
that it is time to deal with that issue. Um, although I also understand an argument that many of the, the people who are pro name, image, and likeness and paying you know, athletes for their, for their name, image, and likeness, that the, it was the O'Bannon situation where, in the case where you would hear people talk about the name on the front of the jersey and the name on the back of the jersey. And I believe that in the case of O'Bannon, that were it not for the name on the front of the jersey, UCLA, the name on the back of the jersey would probably not be as coveted. I think we can all agree on that. That's the nuance I'm talking about. That, yes, let's just start paying everybody. Okay. But we understand that they're at this institution. And the reason, of course, it's terrific that they're at the institution. But that is part of the reason that they can make money. And what I, I'm, I'm for doing this, I, I probably sound like I'm not. I am. But when I mention nuance, I mean it. That... Do we want to just flood the market with money? And, oh, that's car dealers paying for the name, image, and likeness. Oh, the car dealers just paid for the entire volleyball team's name, image, and likeness for the next four years. And look at who they recruited, right? So if we just flood the zone with money, that's not the answer. Because it will then just be more money and more money and more money. Unless we just want to have it be a free-for-all. But I do firmly believe that one of the great allures of college sports, college football, college men's and women's basketball, college volleyball, you name it, is that you're cheering for those 18 to 22 year olds because there's a piece of them that reminds you of you. Uh, that the punter is taking a chemistry class that you took when you were at Michigan or at, uh, at Virginia or at Cornell. And that that's exciting. And I don't know that we want to lose that completely. Um, and I know that, uh, that the conversation again is, is there's a lot, I'm giving just a broad brush here, um, that, that we won't just be throwing millions of dollars at these players and these, you know, these, these college athletes. Yeah, we won't. I understand that. And there's going to be limits. I get all that. But it's a slippery slope. And you're opening up some doors here that it's going to be very interesting. And we want to make sure that there is that college element to it that draws people and makes it interesting. That said, we also know it's huge, big business. I obviously am aware of that. Don't send me emails or, or tweet at me. I get it. <laughs> I get it. I know that. But I do believe that there is a, uh, in, in a, in a black and white conversation, there is lots of gray area. And that's what I'm saying. But I do also think that we have to make sure that we're not having a system where we're paying men, but not women. And I think where we'll be okay in that is that, and where we would have, for example, seen uh, something that you don't hear as much about in this conversation, John, is the paying of Olympic athletes. Katie Ledecky is the greatest swimmer of, of our time and just, you know, obviously going to be one of the stars of the Tokyo Olympics uh, in 2021, which I believe we will have and, and certainly fingers crossed on that. I'll be there and covering them. Katie Ledecky swam at Stanford for two years on the Stanford team and then had to make the decision to turn pro so she could start understandably reaping the benefits of her incredible athletic ability, as well as being just a great person and role model, speaking of role models, and, uh, and start making money and getting contracts, gearing up for what then were going to be the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, obviously the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. Point being, she had to leave collegiate, uh, intercollegiate swimming to start making money. If the, the uh, name, image, and likeness rules were in place a few years ago, Katie Ledecky could have started making money 
and could have still been a swimmer on the Stanford swim team. And there's a positive. And you could say, you know, you're not gonna, gymnastics, probably not, because most of the gymnasts are not college gymnasts. Uh, there's some great college gymnasts, but they're not Simone Biles. They're not the Olympians. But you may well see that some of these Olympic sports, we have a, a wonderful kind of unintended consequence that I'm absolutely in favor of. And that is to uh, let them still be able to be competitive while they can earn money uh, that they only have a short window to earn money. And I mean, Katie Ledecky may swim until she's, you know, the 2028 LA Olympics, but bottom line is most of these Olympians have one shot and at an Olympics. So to make the, and as much money as they can, we obviously believe strongly in that. And then, uh, and, and, and then also still be students and student athletes. So, so there's that piece of it. So again, it's very involved, but I urge caution and I urge um, uh, a lot of thought um, to just willy nilly go into paying everybody I just don't want those car dealers just to buy teams um, and then have, you know, okay, the Alabama car dealers are paying more than the Tennessee car dealers. And that's where it's supposed to not be recruiting. But, you know, we've seen when money gets into sports, especially college sports, there can be a lot of trouble that, that comes along with it. And I certainly would be expecting some of that, depending on how this is all regulated and organized. So we'll, we'll see. And then you asked about the transgender issue. And if the name, image, and likeness issue is uh, involved, the transgender uh, girls and women playing sports issue is even more involved. I am uh, 100% for transgender rights. I want to say that, and I'm saying that loud and clear. I am a supporter of transgender rights. I am horrified when people uh, are discriminating against transgender people. I am horrified when people make jokes about transgender people. Certainly, uh, Caitlyn Jenner uh, went through a lot, and so many others have gone through a lot. We have now political leaders who are transgender, and the stories are horrifying. Shame on anyone who doesn't believe that transgender people uh, deserve the same rights uh, and respect that uh, non-transgender people do. Shame on them. And I say that as a prelude to also now saying that women's sports are a protected class. Women's and girls' sports are a protected class. We have decided as a society, as, a, as an international society, that we believe that girls and women should have the opportunity to play sports. That said, that means that we have put parameters on girls and women's sports to be able to make sure that we protect girls and women's sports. Obviously you learn a lot from playing sports. We want, we boys have played sports for decades and girls are now getting those opportunities to learn about winning and losing at a young age, teamwork and sportsmanship, all these fabulous things that make them better people, better Americans, better citizens of the world, better worldwide people in other, obviously in other countries, even though they don't have title IX, obviously, but better, better uh, people in all ways. Uh, we want girls and women to participate in sports. There are concerns that a nefarious use of important, wonderful uh, freedoms, as I said, 100% for transgender rights. There are concerns about nefarious uses. I know it sounds, I know people are like, oh, that's ridiculous. It is not ridiculous, folks. What Russia could try to pull, they cheat their brains out. Um, if they were to try to use the rules to somehow uh, game the system and, and, uh, and cheat. Um, and that you can let it, people's minds wander of what that could be. This is one of the reasons why the International Olympic Committee has testosterone levels they monitor. 
There are those uh, who are for transgender rights, uh, as I am, who would go farther and say that any transgender girl or woman should just be able to play girls and women's sports. No testosterone levels, no, it doesn't matter if they've gone through male puberty and, and then um, uh, become a transgender. And again, total respect for that. Those are issues. Those are issues that we need to discuss as a society. We have to have a conversation about that. Is that right? Uh, we saw with Connecticut, and by the way, these are small numbers of people. Uh, this is not a worldwide uh, issue. Uh, it's certainly something that is manageable and, dis and we should discuss and we should respect everyone's opinion. But, it's, but it did happen in Connecticut where uh, two transgender girls uh, were able to win uh, many, many state titles and uh, where girls, biological girls were beaten by transgender girls. I pose this as a question, uh, John, is that okay with everyone? If that's okay with everyone, then that's what we'll do. Uh, but we know that's not okay with everyone. And personally, I believe that that's a conversation that should be had. Um, I want those transgender girls to be able to compete. I absolutely want them to have the joys and glories of sport. I also wanna make sure that biological girls are given those same opportunities and are not deprived of opportunities. But we wanna make sure we don't deprive transgender girls of opportunities. So I'm smiling as I say this, not because it's funny, but because we have some conversations ahead of us. And as I said, nuance is the thing. And I, I hope I've tried to explain <laughs> a very, very complicated issue uh, in a few minutes. I'm glad I asked you and I'm glad you took the time to explain it the way you did because you put context around it. And I think that's something that gets lost in the number of characters we have at our disposal on Twitter. So uh, two big issues facing college sports, uh, two totally different issues, but two issues even wildly more complex than the birth of Title IX 49 years ago. I wanna ask you about um, the story that had the biggest impact of your career. Without a doubt, <laughs> it was Tanya Nancy. Uh, the uh, story to end all stories, uh, 1994, January and February, uh, the attack of uh, Nancy Kerrigan by uh, a group of associates uh, and uh, of Tanya Harding and her live-in ex-husband, Jeff Gilluli, and a story that started on January 6, 1994, John, and just kept right on going and went all the way through uh, to Norway, the Lillehammer Norway and the Olympic Games uh, and uh, where they skated. And it was just, there's never been a story like that. When they finally, uh, Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding, uh, and all the other women skaters finally skated in the short program at the end of February uh, in 1994. That, that television broadcast is the sixth highest rated show in television history, not sports, sixth highest rated show in television history. Last MASH, Who Shot JR, Dallas, one episode of Roots, two Super Bowls involving uh, the 49ers and Joe Montana, and number six, Forevermore. Tanya Nancy, short program, uh, CBS, Lillehammer in uh, February of 94, 48.5 rating. That means half the nation watched. It was seven, eight hours old. Everyone knew the result because they were putting it on the radio. Yes, there was radio play-by-play -play of figure skating because this story was so 
huge, so riveting. Uh, I've never had more, more A1 stories, uh, except I guess maybe covering the NFL, the local Washington football team, but uh, back in the 80s. But uh, certainly uh, that amazing number of A1 stories in the Washington Post, where I still work then. It's when I started doing television work. Um, this was reality TV before there was reality TV. <laughs> it was probably the first big reality TV story. It was four months before OJ Simpson and Two Dead Bodies. It actually ended up uh, being uh, the most famous bruised knee in the history of bruised knees when Nancy Kerrigan was attacked. It, it's not funny that she was attacked on, at, in Detroit at the uh, US Olympic trials, the national championships, but it soon became something that you could kind of laugh at or roll your eyes at because Nancy recovered and this spurred her on to the greatest performance of her life. And she should have won the gold medal. I believe she was deserving of the gold in Lola Hummer, but she won the silver, uh, Olympic silver medal. Tanya bombed as, as we would expect she would have and, um, and was a wreck and a mess. Uh, and it was just a story unlike anything else we would see have ever seen. It was when figure skating really exploded in our consciousness and the TV ratings, as I said, went through the roof. Uh, there are more viewers of the Super Bowl and other things now, but in terms of percentage of, house, of, of television households, uh, when there were far fewer TVs, that rating, 48 0.5. You'll never, ever, ever have a, uh, have a rating like that again. So um, uh, it, it was really remarkable. And I'm probably the only serious journalist who will say this to you, but uh, Tanya Harding changed my life. <laughs> and, uh, and, and because of that, because of the TV ratings, because of the interest, Lisa Drew, great book editor at Scribner, got in touch and asked, uh, we'd worked together on Tracy Austin's autobiography a few years earlier. And, and she, uh, she asked if I had any ideas. I said, what about a, a serious journalistic look at figure skating? Because there was go to bookstores and you'd see you know, dozens of books on tennis and dozens of books on baseball and football and golf and not a one on figure skating, except maybe the, you know, the Scott Hamilton story and the Peggy Fleming story, but nothing, uh, no journalistic look at this sport that was so popular, the second most popular sport on TV at the time to the National Football League. And, uh, and so I, I wrote Inside Edge, became a bestseller and allowed me to leave the Washington Post, not because anything was wrong, but because I, I had so many more opportunities now to write another book uh, with Scribner and then TV work and what have speeches and everything came from that. So it really was life altering. Who would have thought that, <laughs> that a, a whack on the knee in figure skating would be, would be that for me. But I, as I tell students all the time, kind of circling back to the mentoring piece of our conversation here, John, is that um, you never know, you never know what it's going to be especially as a journalist, that's just going to take off. And who would have thought that I'm here 5'11 and a half, almost six feet tall. I know how to skate because I grew up in the North and we, we skated on ponds and, and in our backyard, we'd freeze the patio and, and, uh, and skate. Uh, but I never was a figure skater. I was you know, obviously too tall for that. And that it would be that sport and that incident that would really be the most life altering and career altering in a wonderful way uh, for me. And, and uh, as I said, who would have thought, but you just never know when the story comes and when it comes, just jump in with both feet. And I did, and I, I was one of the greatest, most interesting adventures and rides of my entire career. Well, that feels like a great place to end. Thank you for your time, Christine. And uh, I wish you a lot of luck as you uh, battle all of these TV appearances that you're doing for your <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, you're in high demand these days. So thank you so much for giving me a little bit of your time and our listeners some insight about what it's like to, to be mentored and, 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 and the importance of mentoring in your life. Thank you. Well, John, my pleasure. And it's, of course, all, all so fun and wonderful. I still feel very fortunate. And it's, you know, it's um, to be working for CNN, working for ABC, obviously USA Today and, and getting these opportunities at this stage of my career. I, I, love, I love what I'm doing today more than the day I started. And I try to tell all students that if you can achieve that, if you can love it more well into your career than the day that you started, then then you it will be a success. And I really try to, to impart that wisdom and knowledge and that 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 joy and that sense of happiness and wonder even, you know, it's like wow, I, I feel kind of like a kid that just I can't believe all this has happened to me and and yet you work hard. Obviously hard work is a huge piece of it. So I, I'm I'm honored and thank you and thanks for, for doing this podcast. Such an important topic. Uh, love mentoring and love uh, love talking about it, obviously. So thanks so much for having me, John.